Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Pat Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. All right, welcome to episode two of Breaking the Surface. Uh, as you may have heard, we're discussing the documentary Framing Britney, which is on Hulu, and I think it was presented by the New York Times. They have a series of, I don't know, eight episodes maybe in different stories. I was um, intrigued by this documentary after my wife had seen it. It was a night when I was gone, and so she had indulged in this documentary and started to say, Taylor, there's, I think, some real conversations around this. This isn't just like an entertaining Thing. There are some, some more deeply rooted issues. And so I'm sitting with my co-host, Beth and Anthony, and Beth was able to watch the documentary. Um, and Anthony was kind of doing some, some deeper work in terms of reading articles surrounding it and trying to, I think, come from a position of maybe asking us some questions about what we thought about the documentary. I feel like that's a nice way of saying Anthony doesn't have Hulu, so he didn't see the documentary. <laughs> yeah, Anthony didn't do but, his homework, but he did some deeper work. <laughs> but I but I, I did do a lot of uh, research on it, and I used to do a blog where I did a lot with pop culture stuff, and Brittany came up more than once. So I'm familiar with the things being talked about in the documentary, but my knowledge of the actual documentary comes from reading a bunch of different uh, op-eds about what people are saying about it rather yeah. than actually seeing it. Well, I think Beth and I would agree that not everybody would you feel comfortable saying, Hey, sit down with me and have a discussion about a documentary when you didn't watch it. But I think you, <laughs> yeah, I feel that way <laughs> that, that you will know the questions to ask and, ha and have done the research. So I feel good about that. Um, I wanted to start with just like a kind of a general question is what do each of you try to keep in mind when approaching a documentary? Like, are you safeguarding yourself against improper assumptions or like dig, like falling into the bias that sometimes there is with documentaries? Do you have something you run through each time before you watch a documentary or no? That's a good question. I, I think I have a little bit of a critical eye just cause that's a muscle memory default from being a journalist. Um, as I always kind of, I, I'm aware of some of the journalistic tricks that might have gone into the documentary. I'll give you an example. There's a HBO documentary about Woody Allen right now that I've been watching uh, is very powerful. That would be another good discussion. That would be another good discussion. Um, and, but that is an example of a documentary that is, is definitely one-sided and has some producing tricks that kind of make that clear. Um, I don't know that it, like when I w watched this one, for example, that I went in thinking, um, you know, trying to analyze the style more is just absorbing the content, which was uh, something I lived through. I'm almost the same age as Britney Spears. And so I grew up with her music. I was like very of the same time period of, of her. So it was very interesting to watch. But what did what do you think about documentaries? No, I, I think I'm kind of like you, Beth. I don't watch any documentary with the assumption that everything I see is going to be a perfect representation of reality. And so generally the documentaries that I watch, I will go read up on them afterwards. What are people saying about them? Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there is a show on Netflix that does a lot with food and money and corruption. 
Oh, I can't think of the name of it, but they had a brilliant episode that had to do with. Is it rotten? Yes, I, I believe so. It had to do okay. with Nestle bottling water and Northern Michigan yes. stuff. And I was going through that with my ethics class at NMC. And so what we did was watched it. And then I had them all jump online and research and go, okay, now how is Nestle responding to this? What are other people saying, et cetera? That was one actually where the documentary did a really good job of sticking close to what was actually happening. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm generally skeptical that I'm getting an objective view in a documentary. Right. Yeah. I think that's just kind of what I have to remind myself of. And I think I, I did ask myself specifically before this one is, is this documentary uh, seeming like it's out uh, with an agenda of more painting someone in a negative light, or is it trying to just present like what happened? And I think we'll, we'll talk in depth about this documentary. I thought it was pretty well done and it definitely elicited a lot of responses, emotional responses for me. Um, so, I had so many feelings about it. <laughs> yes, I know. I, I was thinking that too. Like I was really glad when my wife uh, talked me into sitting down, but um, I think the big theme was conservatorship. And this was really interesting to me having worked for the Alzheimer's association. These were discussions I was having a lot with um, family families that had someone in their family with dementia and trying to decide what is the best uh, way to move forward with this is conservatorship or guardianship going to be necessary. And I never came across a situation, obviously like Brittany's where it was someone that was very young, was making a ton of money. And you could definitely see that there may be some, some uh, ulterior motives. And so that was just right off the bat was really fascinating to me because conservatorship is so, so complicated. Yeah. I would love to, I haven't had a chance yet since watching the documentary, but I would love to research conservatorship more. I was telling Joe, my partner, as I was watching it, that I was like, this is my literal worst nightmare scenario. Mm -hmm. I have such a strong sense of autonomy and independence, and I have a lot of control issues. And the idea of someone else controlling my finances and my career and my life is just, is, is just abhorrent to me. Um, and I'm sure there are situations and maybe Taylor, you have more experience with them from your social work background, like you were talking about with Alzheimer's. I'm sure there are situations. I mean, the research I have done about conservatorship is that it's, it's, it's meant to be in its ideal form for the benefit of the person. It's to protect them from being exploited from someone from the outside, especially if they're vulnerable to exploitation, it's meant to facilitate their best interests. But I think as we can see from this documentary and there are other situations, there's actually a great Netflix movie out right now called I Care A Lot with Rosamund Pike. Mm -hmm. That is also about this woman who kind of strategically goes about taking control of seniors lives for their wealth and then picking the wrong person. Watch that movie. Um, but uh, yeah, it just, you know, the fact, the one thing that stood out for me from this Britney film was the attorney saying that she had never successfully seen a conservatorship terminated. And I, that really haunted me. The idea mm. that I could see, you know, someone having temporary lapses of mental health, or maybe as they get older, those issues are long-term and they need someone, but to have someone like Brittany, who is a seemingly, we don't have access to all of her mental health information from the courts, but seemingly an independent adult who is working, as you mentioned, is famous, has lots of wealth. She has children who has no control over her own life and potentially is facing that for however long years, decades, the rest of her life. Like it's unclear that to me just raised a lot of issues with that system. And the fact that it's not easy to terminate those relationships. Did you get the impression that it could have possibly started as a legitimate conservative ship, but has run its course? Or do you think there was nothing legitimate about it at all? 
Well, I'd, I'd let you answer first, Taylor. Yeah, I, I think that there were questions from the very beginning of, is this, is this legitimate? But I think more so it's just that, that understanding of like, wow, there's no way to come back from this. Because when we're talking about things like mental health or in, in uh, my experiences, even with dementia, oftentimes someone will, if they're having uh, cognitive issues where they can't make proper decisions and they need someone to act in their best interest, if there's treatment that follows that, they can bounce back a little bit. Mm -hmm. So if you're having issues with your memory and it's because you have not found the right medications to help with that, why can we not reevaluate who's making your decisions once you're on those medications or you've changed your lifestyle a little bit. And I think, you know, mental health, it should be the same way is, are they getting therapy? Are they getting the proper treatments? Are, are they doing, I guess what the courts are saying that they need to be doing. And then can we reevaluate that stuff? And it never seemed like that was, was the hope during any of that. I think what was so frustrating for me watching the documentary, and again, we don't have access to these important court documents. So maybe the judges are seeing things about her mental well-being or her behavior or her erraticism, whatever it is that we don't have access to as the audience. But, you know, like you said, it started with there this period where she had this breakdown and then there was this guy hanging around who was seemingly trying to influence a lot of her financial decisions. And I think the family was legitimately worried about him, uh, that he would be an influence on her and, and maybe take her money or take advantage of her. But what's so frustrating for me is the reason she had that breakdown was she was in untenable conditions with the paparazzi. I mean, just completely mm -hmm kind of like a princess die situation where you see in the film so much footage of them just crowding around her all the time. And the very famous incident where she's beating a car with an umbrella, um, great pictures, you know, this woman's gone insane. Mm -hmm. She's trying to get to her children who are being withheld from her by her husband. And she's trying to do this in the middle of the night and go and have this discussion. You can think about how many marriages in this country have had situations where people are separated and trying to deal with the kids and you're dealing with a partner who's not cooperative. That situation happens to so many people. You're trying to go deal with the situation in the middle of the night and see your kids. And then there's cars all around you taking pictures of you, keeping you from your kids. She, her mental issues, I don't think were inherent. I think they were thrust upon her. Yeah. So for then her, that to lead to her losing your independence is kind of hard to see. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to think of just now this, when you're talking about the paparazzi crowding around her and just the like physical response and panic that that can cause too. There was one time Abby and I were going to a Michigan state football game. We had gotten tickets for my uncle and we mistakenly got in the line where the students enter the stadium. And it was, I've never felt anything like that before being crushed by just literally thousands of drunk students as we're all trying to stream through into the stadium. And Abby started looking at me and she's like, I'm about to lose it. Like I'm going to freak out. And I was like, it's okay. It's fine. And then I had to remember, Oh, you're just, you're as tall as everybody else. You can kind of see what's going on. Yeah. She's a foot below me and she's being crushed by other people. And it nearly got to the point where I was going to have to start like shoving people out of the way to get her out of there. And it's like, maybe the paparazzi isn't a thousand people crowding you, but what does that buildup look like when they're literally following you day after day after day, when you're going to do something simple, like get a coffee or go out to eat or spend time with your kids, like literally stopping your car from moving. Yeah. So they're all around you. You're afraid of hurting someone. If you even bump a photographer, you could get a lawsuit against you, but they're not letting your car move forward because mm -hmm. they want to take pictures of you. So you're just trying to get out of the gas station or the grocery store or whatever it might be. At times as she's crying and saying, I'm scared and it yeah. doesn't make a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing that struck me as I was reading a lot of different people talk about the context of different incidents in her life. 
what she went through with Kevin Federline is what a lot of people go through. And the stress she was feeling in terms of emotional and relational coming off of two pretty close together births and the very real possibility of postpartum depression. I don't know that that's an officially diagnosed mm. thing, but it wouldn't be unusual. Yeah. And I have a wife who went through pretty severe postpartum depression. And one thing that struck me was if she were an average person, I think this would just have been life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But because she is so much in the spotlight and surrounded by so many people all the time, suddenly life, which is hard enough, gets blown out of proportion. And I, it, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around what you were saying, Taylor, how hard that must be to simply try to put one foot in front of the other mm. in the kind of spotlight that she was in. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, how much of her story we have probably seen play out in people we know's lives. You know, like you said, relationship issues. and and problems with kids. I know a lot of people that have lost custody of their kids or are trying to figure out what the next step is for their kids. And they are not bad people. They're just life has life has happened to them. And when you see this stuff play out for someone that's famous, you, they don't have to be bad to make the storyline work. They just have to be imperfect and be struggling with something. And then that's what the media and even us can just grab onto and be like, ah, yes. I'm glad that they're having problems. I mean, even the the pictures, it, to me, it was just helpful to see because as a consumer, like at that time, I was just seeing the pictures in you know, Us mm-hmm. Weekly or whatever. So you see a picture of the umbrella or her with her kid on her lap in the car, not like properly buckled in. And then you see the full context of it in the documentary. And it's like, she didn't have time to like get this kid into a proper car seat in the back because her entire car is surrounded by strange men pressing against her and taking photos. She's worried. She's trying to protect her child. She gets in the front seat. She puts a kid in her lap and she's just trying to get out of there. Mm. So again, like I feel like that context was always missing. And this is something that's really, I mean, the documentary brings up a lot of issues of, you know, fame and how we treat women and some things that we can talk about, but how the paparazzi act, um, I don't think has gotten much better since that time. Um, we can see examples like, you know, for example, at the time we're recording this, um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are going to give this famous big interview this weekend talking about why they left becoming royals because of how the paparazzi was just hounding them. And he was afraid that something was going to happen to his wife that happened to his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's gotten better. And I've seen so many behind the scenes videos of paparazzi screaming horrible things at women or trying to provoke them or saying like, you're the reason your husband died. I mean, really horrible stuff because all they care about is getting the reaction shot because they know the audience won't have the context. Mm -hmm. They won't be the bad guy. It'll just be the image that really stuck with me Mm -hmm. from the film. Yeah. I want to, I want to kind of jump maybe back to the beginning as we, as the documentary did a really good job showing like how, what her start was like. And this gets to maybe the deeper issue of the differences in how men and women are treated, maybe not just in everyday life, but when it comes to to famous people too. And so it stuck out to me, uh, that clip when she was really young, she was maybe 10 or 11. And the, the media member was asking her if she had a boyfriend and was just making this huge deal out of, do you have a boyfriend? And, and then like, applying for the job. Yeah. And then <laughs> applying for the job, which was just, just really, really so creepy. creepy. Yeah, yeah. It's not like her grandpa or something that could make a cute little joke like that. Like this was a strange man. Yeah. And I was like, do I do like, have I done that to my younger cousins that mm-hmm. have I just kind of tried to tease them or ask them, um, Hey, do you have a boyfriend yet? As they're, you know, in, in fifth or sixth grade. And like, what are they getting out of that? Are they, are they mistaking that joke or, or 
you know, whatever it is for like me trying to place some sense of value on if they have a boyfriend or not. And I sincerely hope not, but it, it was something for me where I was like, I'm not going to ask that question anymore. That's just, I don't want to run that risk of making someone feel a woman feel like Brittany probably felt in that situation as a 10 or 11 year old girl. And I think I have to say that I, I'll be honest as a woman, I think I've done that same thing to my nieces or to, you know, kids of like, Oh, do you, are there any boys in your class that you like? Cause it's cute to me. It's like, it's cute to be like, mm-hmm. you know, like childhood crushes aren't like going to be a thing. So it's just like little puppy crushes, but it's a completely valid question of like, those kind of questions that we ask as adults do communicate, I think maybe some sort of value to kids, even if we think it's joking. In some ways it's a version of asking the question, do people find you desirable? Yeah. Yeah. And then you're going to make connections about why that might be. Mm. And I'm trying to remember in the clip that you're talking about that I read about, uh, (laughs) I was trying to remember, did he make comments about how pretty her eyes were or some, some comments about her physical appearance? Said something something like that led into yeah. you know, why she should have a boyfriend or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you must be desirable because of X. Right. I've actually thought of this in other contexts too. A couple of years ago, I was talking with someone who was trying to stop asking people. One of their first questions when he met someone was, what do you do? Mm-hmm. As if their value was instantly going to correlate to what they do. And someone might have to go, uh, I'm between jobs. And just like that, there's a dynamic that enters and you could tell there's often a sense of shame in the person who responded that way. And his uh, conclusion was he wanted to get away from asking the kind of questions that would send a message to people. There was something about their value that was contingent on something else. Mm -hmm. And yeah, when you see the story of Brittany experiencing this from incredibly young age, that's got to be deeply formative. And then as the, the interview goes on and, or the documentary goes on and she gets older in interviews, she's still not that much older. She's a teenager. She's asked about her virginity. She's asked about like, there was one clip in it where the guy was like, let's talk about your breasts. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? <laughs> as Crazy. a woman, like watching this, I was like, she is a child still. She's a teenager. And, and she, even if, even if she wasn't, even if she was my age in her thirties, that's not a question you ask someone. And she just had to play nice. She was just, Oh, yeah, she giggly was just like, smiling. Oh, like you could tell she's so uncomfortable. Like I felt so uncomfortable by proxy watching it. And there were so many of those moments. I mean, obviously you can tell from the way her whole career was handled, how sexual sexualized she was by her record company and by her music videos. Again, I remember being that age when Hit Me Baby One More Time came out in the very famous schoolgirl costume. Like I was the same age as she was. And I was like, oh, that's what's that's what's sexy or that's what boys like. You know, that message came through. But definitely some of those clips, I was like, I just cannot believe that uh, interviewers are asking these questions. Mm -hmm. Try to envision a female interviewer asking a teenage boy equivalent questions. Oh, Oh, I know. Right. (laughs) It would be horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) And it wouldn't be nearly as accepted. Yeah. Like at all. It just, that's just the, I don't know, the trajectory that we've created. Um, That was actually one of my questions was like this obsession with her virginity. And I kept trying to think of parallels between um, famous men and how those same areas might've been approached by the media or the public. And so do you remember the Jonas brothers when they were wearing their purity rings? Oh, sure. And so I was trying to to remember, like, was there this same obsession with the Jonas Brothers and their virginity as there was with Britney's? And if there was, say, the same level of obsession, was it the same type of obsession? Because I think as we saw it play out with Justin Timberlake and that conversation surrounding her virginity, 
I felt like they were asking her those questions um, almost as a way to like make Justin out to be more masculine. Like, hey, dude, did you did you accomplish this goal yet of, you know, hooking up with Brittany? Because that's how I saw it. I didn't see it as um, something that benefited Brittany, obviously, at all. I thought it was more to Justin's benefit. Yeah. And you're right. There's a there's a clip in the film where they asked Justin, this is after the breakup. And they're like, did you basically like real guy jock talk? They're like, did you get it? You know, did you did you have sex with her? And he's kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, like and I was I mean, the whole thing was disgusting anyways. But I would go back to the same thing. It's not appropriate to be asking him that like it's not appropriate to ask him about his sex life or his virginity any more than it is hers. To me, it brought up this whole idea of fame and the accessibility that we expect stars to have where every aspect of their lives. And I know because Anthony and I have had conversations in different um, things that we've done in the past, different podcast conversations, but this idea that there are some things are precious and intimate and should be your information or something between you and your partner. It should not just be open season on every aspect of someone, but that's kind of what we expect out of celebrities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and we can get almost angry if we feel like they're not giving us the window into their life that we think we deserve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, as a, as a male started, would see that shift play out with friends and having spent time in, in locker rooms where there is, locker room talk, um, and seeing like, you know, that, that guy that's in a relationship with that girl, he's not really talking as much about like all the stuff that they're doing. I think he might actually like her, you know, and, (laughs) and just like though, the way that that plays out and seeing, uh, it's kind of easy to tell how much you value someone based on what you, not only what you say, but also what you won't say and, and what you're willing to protect. I think. Is that the difference between talking about someone as if they're a human Mm-hmm. Talking about someone as if they're a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the dehumanization. There's yeah. definitely a lot of dehumanization in this film. Yeah. And that's what I took away from her is not only how does the conservatorship and having someone have control of your life dehumanize you if you feel independent and that you should be able to make your own decisions, but all of the uh, implications of fame in general, not having ownership of self because the public owns you. Mm-hmm. So again, I was trying to find, or do you have something, Anthony? I was trying to find parallels. And I, do you remember when Justin Bieber flew off the handle for a while? Yeah. And he was, I think, driving his Lamborghini, like on the sidewalk in Beverly Hills and doing all this stuff that was actually quite dangerous. And I think that he was struggling with a lot of these same things. He became famous probably around the same age that Britney became famous. It seemed like it was a meteoric rise. So I thought that there were some similarities But then the similarities for me ended when you saw like how he was treated. Like, was anybody fighting for his conservatorship uh, in the same way they were fighting for Britney's? (laughs) And I think it, it definitely has to be asked. Why, why is that? Why is he doing things that are uh, quite literally dangerous? um, And he was probably treated much differently than Britney was. Mm -hmm. I remember a lot of coverage about Mm -hmm. what, was going off the rails in his life, but you're right. I don't remember reading about people seeking to step in and make his life decisions for him. Mm. Yeah. I wonder why, why that is. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to think of many. I I don't, I don't know of many celebrity conservatorships examples in general, but um, yeah, situations like that, or like even in more recent examples, I mean, you had Tiger Woods, you know, just get in another car accident (laughs) recently, the whole circumstances around that are not known yet, but that's a person who's had a very troubled adult life with a lot of difficulties with impulse control and substance abuse and making 
uh, decisions that have been very injurious to himself and to others. And no one is controlling his estate or trying to control his estate. So it is, she it is a very unique situation with her, mm-hmm. I think. And I don't know why all the reasons are for that. Okay. So another question for both of you, and I couldn't pick this up from what I was reading. It sounded like the documentary does not give details about this. There is just not much that is known about what goes on behind the scenes because people don't talk, but Brittany has her own legal team. I believe I would think she could call up someone like Oprah and do an interview if she wanted to and spill all the beans and like air all the dirty laundry about what's going on or her attorneys could do some type of formal presentation, file a lawsuit. I mean, I know they fought the conservatorship, but it, what strikes me on the surface and then tell me if I'm missing something is that in today's culture, especially with media being what it is, there's plenty of opportunity for her side of the story to get out. And if it was just a horribly degrading story where she is being controlled and used, I would think that the public pushback from more than just the, the hardcore Britney fans would be pretty overwhelming. So I'm trying to figure out what to do with the fact that that hasn't happened. Do you have any speculation on that? I have one theory. And I mean, to me, it's tied to the constraints of the conservatorship itself. So to me, it's like trying to communicate with the outside world from a prison cell while you've got a guard in between you. (laughs) You know, it's I don't know. I don't because I don't know the logistics of how it legally works. I don't know how much autonomy she truly has to make those kinds of decisions. Like what decisions have to be run through her dad and the other conservator or which ones she can make on her own. The way that she's been in the last year sort of speaking out is through her Instagram account. She's been posting these sort of coy videos and, you know, sending messages that are seemingly coded to her fans. The most recent filing where she had said, I don't want this was like the first time she's ever publicly acknowledged, like she's not happy with the situation that she is in. You know, I guess I would be concerned if I was going to go do the Oprah interview or whatever it might be. And maybe that's nuclear options she's reserving. But what do you do then if someone can retaliate against you and they have control of your entire state? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's difficult to go on the warpath against someone who's controlling all your resources, your potential future career. And I don't know how that ap- impacts her children either, her relationship with her children. But I would imagine some of those might be considerations. Yeah, I got the sense that she was just hamstrung, you know, with this conservatorship. And then I also have to remind myself, because I think it's very easy with famous people that seem to have all these, all these other things that we all want, which is resources and fame and attention, um, that there's real families and relationships that are involved in it too. And so I do have to wonder, like, for as bitter as she probably is towards her dad, what conflicting feelings like are still there of, man, I would really like if her dad has health issues, which I think they had said he was having some health issues. Yeah. Um, what is she just kind of wanting to wait out and maybe try to, I don't know if she's working on anything with her dad or trying to salvage some type of relationship. But I think that that just adds a bunch of different complexities to it because here's someone who probably as soon as she became famous as a teenager, maybe when she joined the Mickey mouse club, I think her relationship with her family changed completely. And in some ways you're probably wanting things to be back to normal but that was hundreds of millions of dollars ago <laughs> and you know, a couple of decades ago. And so I, I do wonder too, how that might play just not from a legal sense, but a personal sense too. Cause they did imply in the film that she was not, her dad was not very involved in her life. Like her mom was spending. And of course, you know, we don't 
know the whole story, but her mom was spending a lot of time with her in New York, helping her get the auditions and sort of shepherding her early career. And it seemed like her dad became much more prevalent in her life later towards the kind of height of her stardom, Mm -hmm. which raises some questions Mm -hmm. (laughs) about the timing of that. Yeah. I want to continue to delve into this um, idea of like just how we treat famous women. And Anthony, you had kind of said like um, when talking about the virginity, like are we talking about this person as a person or what was the other term or a thing? Yeah. So it was like a commodity or whatever. Um, The other thing that really stuck out to me is when she was, I think starting to show signs that she was having some difficulties and she was going, not that going out and partying is a, a sign that you're having problems, but she was going out with Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan. And then there were these newspaper articles calling him the bimbo squad and all these different types of things. And I was looking at that and I was just like, you know, who looks like Brittany and her friends, pretty much every girl that I ever saw go to the bars in college. Yeah. And there's <laughs> like, and so for those girls that are going out and, and doing those things and going out with their friends and having fun with their friends, um, what are they thinking as they hear their dad, their uncle, their grandpa, um, call these celebrity women, things like bimbos and just like throwing that term around so loosely. Um, I think that that is something that men need to, to come to grips with is because in a lot of ways, I think this goes along with the me too movement too, where we have to understand if we are contributing to an environment that feels unwelcome for women to speak and to say things. And so it might not seem like a big deal to, I don't know, back in the early 2000s to have been a grandpa and reading the Britney Spears thing and being like, yep, that sure is a bimbo squad out there. And having your granddaughter like hear you say that, I don't know if that's damaging, Mm -hmm. but I have to think it doesn't help. (laughs) And so like what issues is, is your granddaughter or daughter going to come up against in life that they might, they might be like, am I really safe to, to tell my dad or, or my uncle or my grandpa that I was just, just violated because I decided to go back to a guy's apartment and hang out for the night? Um, or is their first question going to be, well, were you drunk mm-hmm. or why were you acting like a bimbo? Um, so those are just things that I think men in general have to come to terms with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's funny because later in life, you know, Paris Hilton has talked about abuse that she suffered as a teenager. Lindsay Lohan has talked about, you know, what it was like to be a child star and how damaging that was for her. There have been plenty of other women who've grown up as, you know, teen stars and talked about, how damaging that is. And you think of is what it's like to be a teenager or a college age female in general, you're dealing with so many messages from society about your, your um, self-worth based on what you look like and expectations from people and trying to be uh, careful about how you navigate relationships with men and figuring out your sexuality, like all this stuff. That's a normal pressure cooker for any girl <laughs> in this country. And then you add all of that paparazzi attention and Jay Leno getting up and making you the subject of his monologues every night. I have so many feelings about Jay Leno. I just mm. have to say I was already team Conan, but Um, you know, watching those monologues, I mean, he would just say really, really brutal things. And then it's like the whole country is hearing that. And that's you hearing that, you know, people talk about, you you know, it reminds me of, uh, the Joker movie, um, the last Joker movie. Was it just called the Joker? I can't remember. The one, the Joaquin Phoenix one. Yeah. 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 The show. The the show. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, exactly. It's, it's like, it's not a, you know, and I think there was, there was good footage, um, back in the time of, um, Craig, what's his name? One of the late night talk show hosts, but, but he was like, you know what? I'm not going to do this. He's like, I think this is normally a part of the monologue where I make fun of Britney Spears. He's like, I think there's like some mental Mm -hmm. health issues. It doesn't feel okay to make fun of this Mm -hmm. before. And I was like, good for you. Mm -hmm. And I think we've come a little bit of a way since then. I don't see quite the, like the knives out and the monologues. I mean, you've got really soft people like Jimmy Fallon now doing really sweet, kind little monologues. So I think the culture has changed, but man, it was pretty brutal then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I have a question. I feel like culture in general has treated Britney Spears and Miley Cyrus differently because Miley has been somewhat volatile throughout her life. So it seems like at times some kind of wild swings and how she presents herself and and, and like, she'll do a crazy thing. And I feel like if it was Brittany, it would have been all these red flags and a sign that something's really falling apart. But from Miley, generally what I've seen is people talking about her creativity and her ability to reinvent herself. And there's been a positive spin there on some things that I think are similar to things Brittany went through at times, but Brittany always got the negative spin. Would you agree with that, first of all? And then if you do, why do you think that is? I think some of it is just, you know, kind of like Beth had alluded to with the late night talk shows and is that conversation shifting? Um, One of the things that I noticed from that too was a similar sentiment of like, what did Brittany go through that almost paved the way for things to be different for this next generation? Mm -hmm. So Brittany, in a lot of ways, like you think, Oh. oh, this stuff was only blowing up in 2008. A lot has happened since 2008 you know, culturally and with technology. And, and I think people are much more aware than they used to be about stuff like that. And so, um, in some ways I think that's had an impact where Miley maybe was able to see like the experiences of someone like Brittany and like almost go on the offensive with some of that stuff. Yeah. Like she seemed self-empowered, whereas Brittany seemed like she was being sort of manipulated by mm -hmm. the industry or the machine of her record company. Yeah. If exactly. Miley would shave her head tomorrow, I think her fans would be excited about what the next album's going to be like. I think she has shaved her head. Yeah. Know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. She's been all over the map with her relationships and her sexuality and her looks and her albums. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, it all seems like she's this powerful self. Same thing with Taylor Swift. She's not been quite as wild in the swings, I think, because she's had a pretty carefully managed image, but she's had this sort of series of boyfriends and, reinventing herself and being in different genres. And it, that seems to be more empowered, but Taylor, I think you make a, like a really excellent point, which is like Brittany on probably very unwittingly <laughs> might've been the sort of sacrificial lamb that ushered in this different era of, of how we talk about things. I think the two big things would be like, I think we talk about mental health differently. I think we still have a long way to go but I don't think it's okay anymore on talk shows to like make fun of someone's mm-hmm. mental health or there's, you have pro athletes who are talking about their anxiety now. Like it's, it's becoming a better national conversation, which is good. Um, I still think we need to like normalize therapy, but we're getting there. And then the other thing is um, the me too movement happened. So how you talk about women and all the cases that we've seen in society of women being victimized has really changed the national conversation. I think you're right. I just saw, uh, I read an article with Miley where in a recent awards show, there was some situation where they wanted to shine what she called a beauty light or something. There's somebody in which they stage ideas for women. And she really pushed back on it hard and then talked about it publicly afterwards. I don't think Brittany would have done either of those things because 
the cultural mood would not have given her permission. But yeah, Miley lives in a different cultural mood. Yeah, Brittany yeah. would have been like, just shut up and perform. Like you should be grateful that you're mm-hmm. even getting a stage. But I've heard like there's been similar conversations where Rihanna has talked about like, I'm not gonna perform at the award show under these circumstances. Like I'm going to control how and when I appear. And I don't think they had the power to do that during Britney's time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm reminded of, so like in the same vein are um, the Kardashians and we see some of that stuff. I mean, talk about people that are just, just so like closely followed by paparazzi in the media and, er- and the, everybody in the whole world seems to care about just like the, the most minuscule things that are happening in their life. Um, one of the sisters, I can't, I think it's Kylie has dated six or seven NBA players. And you would see stuff on social media, essentially painting her out as we'll use the term bimbo again of like, man, these NBA players just keep passing her around. And it's really easy to look at something like that and be like, man, she does like date a lot of NBA players. Like what's up with that? And then no one would use that phrase if it was one NBA player guy with six or seven different girlfriends. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then someone had, had also said like, Hey guys, what if it's actually Kylie that is dictating these relationships and it's like her choice to be in relationships with these different people. Like not that she's just, you know, with these NBA guys that are calling each other up and are like, yeah, I'm done, you know, hanging out with Kylie. So it's your (laughs) turn. No, she has um, the ability to make decisions of if she wants to date someone. And And she's also a very wealthy, powerful celebrity who maybe wants to be in equitable relationships with other wealthy, powerful celebrities. I mean, I don't think it's the craziest thing in the world. Can I tell you one thing that I'm afraid of as a woman is that I think we've made progress since the Britney film. When we start seeing this kind of backlash that we're seeing right now to cancel culture, I sometimes worry that we're going to come around full circle, (laughs) that we've gotten to an age where it's you have to be more careful about what you say um, or you'll quote unquote get canceled. And some people will say that with an eye roll and some people will say it seriously, that this is an age of accountability that's long overdue. I worry sometimes that there's such a, a backlash against cancel culture and you're hearing it said more and more mockingly now that there is a segment of the population that wants to be in the era where it's okay to make off color jokes and it's okay to talk about women's virginity. And it's okay. like that to them felt like a free fun, probably because they weren't personally impacted mm-hmm. by it. It's easy to laugh at the joke if you're not the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I worry that we're going to get back into, I don't know, it's going to get some kind of ugly element is going to be revisited because people don't want to have any constraints on what they can say or do. Mm-hmm. Oh man, we need Go to do ahead. a whole different podcast on that. <laughs> well, I think it's a fantastic we, point. Yeah, we did. We did have a discussion on my podcast about cancel culture yeah. and it, I learned a lot just from sitting down with you guys, but I, I see that too of this cancel culture and the reaction from those that feel like the canceling is bad is almost as damaging as like what a cancellation might be. If you think that cancellation is damaging, you know, yeah. and I think it kind of depends on the situation. Like we talked about that in the podcast is, you know, are we giving people a chance to um, come back from a mistake that they've made or is the mistake so egregious that there really isn't a way of coming back um, to the point where that person was like, we've had examples play out in our local community. You know, we were talking about the commissioner using the N word, Mm-hmm. And it's like, maybe he could have came back from that if it was just one time, but he was given another chance to <laughs> clarify comments or whatever. And he continued to use the word. And so for me, I'm comfortable saying, all right, maybe that guy shouldn't be in that position of leadership anymore. And I think it does depend on the situation. 
we're just not able to look at each situation individually. We, we seem to like look at them all lumped together. I think we all cancel. Everybody mm-hmm. participates in cancel culture. We all make choices about things we look at and go, I will not have that be part of my life anymore, or that person no longer gets to be a voice in my life. We do it all the time on an individual basis. And not only that, we advocate for it. I see it on everybody's social media. Like half the people on my news, on my Facebook feed say, you should never watch CNN again. And the other half says, you should never watch Fox again. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is, that's cancel culture, so to speak. And I, what frustrates me about the discussion is that it is a long form discussion that needs to be had, not memes, mm-hmm. not Dr. Yeah. Seuss books. It's, it's a deep philosophical issue that has to do with how we exercise what we know to be the good that comes from the freedom of speech, along with the accountability that has to come with the freedoms that we have. Mm-hmm. Once again, back to how do we, how do we talk with each other like humans and not things? Yeah. Okay. I want to, I'm going to say something about, um, Miley Cyrus again, you guys are going to think I'm just a huge Miley Cyrus fan. <laughs> uh, you guys are black mirror fans, right? Yeah. I, I haven't seen every episode, but I've seen. Okay. Some. Yeah. Have you seen the one with Miley Cyrus? I have not. What was the theme or story? Okay. So I think it might've been, it, it might've just dropped. I'm not sure. I just started watching it last night. Okay. I hadn't seen it. And I realized I didn't know there was an episode I hadn't seen. I'll give you the basic premise. I, I think I can do it without giving away any spoilers. Well, I know I can't because I haven't finished the episode yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's Miley in some ways playing Miley. She's mm. a hugely famous singer and she has a, an aunt who's like a conservator. So this is going to overlap with Brittany and a group of people around her who work with her to make her music famous. Well, they put out this doll that mimics her and it's run by an AI So her fans are snatching up this doll all over the world because they feel like they can be talking with her. I'm already creeped out by the premise. Yeah, yeah. Dolls, Uh, man. It's like all their episodes. It doesn't take long to get creeped out by it. Well, as the show unfolds, you realize, you come to find out she's kind of hit um, a glitch in her songwriting process. And she's turning into this very kind of morose, introspective, depressed phase. And if you like Miley's voice, which I do, she does some beautiful singing, just her and the piano as she's kind of writing these songs. And her manager comes in and and doesn't tell her to her face, but basically it's like, oh no, she's not going to make it. So they put her into an induced coma. They claim it's an accident. And they have, they have the technology to mine her brain. So as she is in a coma, they are like mining new songs and producing albums. And uh, I'm going to recommend both of you watch that because yeah. I think it overlaps a couple different themes. One is the whole conservativeship thing. It does tie in with what's going on with Britney. The other is the question of just how soul-sucking the entertainment industry is. And I, I wonder if what's happening with Britney isn't a broader kind of moral caution Mm. that money and fame tend to just be, um, they tend to eat people up and spit them back out. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what we can learn from what's happening with Brittany in a broader sense of how we as a culture, not only idolize our entertainers, but what we expect of them, how we ought to treat them. And I don't know. I mean, that that's complex and that's a culture wide thing, but it, it has me thinking more and more just about how many stories do we actually know of really famous 
singers in particular, but you could even say actresses and actresses. There seem to be precious few stories that end well. Some do. Don't get me wrong. There's always Tom Hanks. There's always there's, what I, there's right, always right, what right. I call yeah, the Tom Hanks don't exception. Don't jinx it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, now, now you blew it, Beth. Uh, yes, there's the Tom Hanks's of the world. There, there are absolutely people who end well. And I would love to see there be more of a study of, okay, let's look at their life. Mm-hmm. That had to be either a series of conscious choices they made or a gathering of a group of people around them who genuinely had their best interests in mind that somehow making money was not the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Having influence was not the bottom line, but there's something stabilizing in the Tom Hanks of the world. And I wonder if this can be a cultural moment where that's what we're revisiting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what yeah. I what I would be really curious about, and maybe I'll be able to have an answer someday if Brittany does do the exclusive sit down and really talks about what, what her experience has been like from her own perspective, I think that would be really interesting, um, <laughs> is that I think uh, I would be so curious if she had the option. I know it's just a hypothetical, but if right now she could trade in all of her experiences with fame and wealth and be a completely anonymous person just raising her children without any conservatorship, if she would make that trade. I I would think maybe she would. It's a fascinating question. And I wonder for how many celebrities that is true of, of this sort of Faustian deal that you make with the devil to get fame and how unhappy it seems to make a lot mm-hmm. of people. Or maybe it's just the reality that fame doesn't change any circumstances and you expect it to. So that dichotomy of that you know, failed expectation is, is part of what contributes to the unhappiness. But I think it's not just that fame doesn't make you happy. I think it can actually aggressively make you unhappy. Yes. Yep. <laughs> um, and I, I don't think it's normal. I don't think the human condition is, is built to be known by millions of people. I think we're right. built to be in small communities and to know each other on an intimate level. And there's something, I think already mm-hmm. social media, we see that distortion just in our own lives of, it's weird when strangers come up to you and they know you've done something because I saw you post about it on yeah. social media mm-hmm. or whatever it is. I think we've added all these layers of artifice and celebrity is just one example, but social media is another of how we're broadening our reach and our social circles, but we're not building any sort of deeper relationships or community mm-hmm. to go along with that, to center you in that. Yeah, That's a fascinating point because in my circles, because I'm a pastor, one of the things that comes up is the discussion of, the stories that have been breaking nationally, internationally of people who are in church ministries and they travel a lot and they're incredibly famous. They don't have that close intimate circle of friends. They don't have accountability. The people that are around them, I think it comes to a point where you question whether or not the people who are close with you are close with you because they like and care about you or because they like being in your shadow. And I, I think that runs across probably runs across cultures, across industries, you name it. It's a widespread reality. What does it look like to divest ourselves of power and influence mm-hmm. for the, for the sake of staying healthy? And this guy in the film that was, you know, the family believed was a threat to Brittany that she was hanging around with this producer type guy that they were worried was going to hijack her wealth or her career or something. I don't know how much validity there is to that. That doesn't, it's not really explored in the film how valid that was, but all I could say is if she was vulnerable to someone like that, I wouldn't be surprised because she was so isolated from people. She didn't seem to have, like you were talking about Anthony, real friendships, real connections. When you're completely alone and you feel like 
you're the most famous person in the world, but no one knows you or (laughs) understands you. Of course you'd be vulnerable to someone who has shown you any kind of kindness or friendship, even if they're just one person who doesn't have your best interests at heart and are just trying to also take advantage of you. I just imagine it would make you so vulnerable to exploitation because you're hungry for real human connection. And that is another recurring theme of the film of why I feel so bad for her is I think her reactions and her behavior are completely normal for the insane circumstances that she's put in. Yeah. So for her to lose her autonomy because she's reacting how any human would trying to find connection and trying to deal with this insane threatening group of men around her all the time. Like what would you expect her to do otherwise? Mm-hmm. I'm going to jump. Yeah. Jump back into my social work thing. So this reminds me as we, as we look at famous people, wealthy and famous people and see them having issues. I think we oftentimes, even though we say that the money and the fame might be the root of, of the, the problems, we still, I think are, are convincing ourselves that, ah, but if we had that responsibility, we would do it right. We would do it correct. I think that's why we're so obsessed with watching this stuff play out. And I am not famous. I am not wealthy. But I was remembering when I worked at a homeless shelter in East Lansing and I would have to make these connections with these families that literally lost their housing and had zero dollars to their name. Most times it would take me a while to break through with them and to get them to trust me because to them, I was wealthy. Mm. Like I had the ability to, to drive to my own home after, after work, I had a home that I owned. I had a, I had a car that worked. And I had food on the table, all these different things. And I wasn't being um, forced really to ask for help from like an entity like the one I worked at. And so I do oftentimes remember being really frustrated because I put my heart into my work. I had the best intentions for these people. But when I would meet with them for the first time, they didn't see me as a person because they didn't think I could relate to what they were going through. Mm. And I think that Brittany and other famous people probably feel that same thing at a much like more visceral level of like, yep, ever since I blew up at 13 years old, no one has ever seen me as a person anymore. They see me as the, as this, this money, like in this opportunity and how can they get a piece of that? And so in some small way, I can kind of relate to that. Like it took a while for me to be able to show those people, Hey, I am here and I have your best interests in mind and I want to actually help you. Um, you know, despite the fact that I had a lot of things that they maybe had never had in their lives. Well, and who would, who is in her peer group, genuine peer group, that is someone whose life experience fairly closely tracks hers. And I'm not just talking to someone in the entertainment industry or another singer, but someone who from the time they were young, this, 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 because if you can't find someone that you think actually genuinely does understand you, there's a bit of a despair, I think, that follows from thinking you might never be understood. Mm-hmm. My closest example is the heart attack that I had five years ago was uh, it's called a widow maker in the vernacular. And it was 100 percent. Not many people survived that. I have found one person online who has survived a 100 percent blockage widow maker. Mm. And I want to talk to someone because I continue to have effects that I don't fully understand, because when I read what other heart attack survivors go through, their journey has been very different from mine. And I desperately want to find mm. that person I could talk to who experienced exactly what I experienced or relatively so. And that's where I wonder for some people like Brittany, who her rise to stardom. I mean, she was a meteor, right? Mm-hmm. Who does she go to? Even Paris Hilton and um, who was their other friend? Lindsay Lohan. Uh, Lindsay Lohan. Different 
Yeah. Well, you know, one's an actor, one's an heiress. It's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I, when I, th- if I think too much about that, I get, I get depressed because I just think, <laughs> I wonder, I really wonder if she's gone through most of her life thinking there is no one in the world who will get me. Yeah. And that's why I think I, that's why I would speculate that maybe she would trade it. And maybe my, I guess my hope for her <laughs> as someone who has no you know, personal knowledge of her would be that at some point she does have some return to normalcy and maybe that's just the control of her life again. And maybe she still wants to be a celebrity or performer. It seems like she still wants to have a music career. She seems interested in performing when she can do it under her own power and circumstances. But I, you know, I think sometimes I see celebrities and I'm like, man, my greatest wish for you is that you could go back to experiencing what it's like to not be a celebrity Mm -hmm. again. And I bet a lot of them would feel that way. Also, the celebrities I've seen who have been the most well-adjusted, we mentioned Tommy Hanks, I love so much (laughs) and he survived COVID. So he should be good. Episode Um, three, we have Tom Hanks. So make sure you want to probably get the most downloads. Or like I mentioned my love for Conan O'Brien earlier. He's, he's, I love him because he's so candid as a celebrity. He's talked about his struggles with depression. He's talked about his experiences in the industry. He's talked about the need for compassion and kindness, but he also talks about how grateful he is that he sort of grounded out for years working behind the scenes as a writer. And Mm. that fame came to him later. And he has talked with other celebrities about how damaging it is to become a celebrity young. And that's the other layer on top of Britney. It's like one, you have the stratosphere fame that you're talking about, Anthony, which makes it difficult for anyone to relate to her, but it happened to her when she was a child. So you didn't have any sense of normalcy to even compare a life to. You don't have the maturity to deal with a lot of situations that you're being put in, which would be strenuous for most adults, much less a kid. Um, So for me, the extra sort of tragic nature of it is how young it happened to her. And it just changed the entire course and shape of her life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would love like LeBron James to do like a masterclass on how to have handled, you know, (laughs) like fame at such a young age. Now he hasn't done everything perfectly, but if we're talking about like, you know, keeping his mental health intact and like not committing crimes and he doesn't have any of these scandals. Like, I don't know. I really don't know how he's gotten as far as he has. Like, unscathed in that way. Do you know what I mean? Like I got to guess his family and his wife yeah. and cause he, he married he, young and his, he has married kids his high school and, sweetheart yeah. and he had kids at a pretty young age. And by all accounts, he's a great father and husband and, and quite the philanthropist in yes. his community. Yeah. And, and so I think that that, that part is fascinating of like, you know, he became famous at, I mean, he started to be on the cover of sports illustrated 17 at the latest. He might've been on it earlier. Um, and has just become more and more famous ever since then. And I think that I'm just trying to think of what people could learn from, learn from that because you, you hear about Macaulay Culkin, like this cute kid that was in home alone. And then you hear him talk about what it was like as a little kid and his parents are driving him to audition after audition and, and being like, you're treated as a, as a thing or a commodity by your own parents almost. And, and I think that that's just so damaging. So it's, it is almost like, you can predict the fall coming a lot of times. If you've seen someone like a Britney come from 13 years to now being 40 or Miley Cyrus, it's like, it's a sick game that you can play of like, you know, I think it's only a matter of time until something major happens with this person because they've been famous uh, from way too young of an age. So I wonder if you could summarize it like this. We're speaking very broadly here, of course. People who come from a stable community that they throughout their life continue to value more than their fame. 
stay relatively grounded and stable. Okay, so today we are diving into a Shorts Brewing Company brew called Good Humans. It is a dry hopped double brown ale, uh, 40 IBU. Um, it says 9.15 ABV, which is strong. So we'll see. Um, that explains why I feel the way I do after <laughs> only two sips. Agreed. It's, it's, yeah, it feels strong. Um, a little information about this beer. First of all, I picked it because of its name. Um, we're talking about Brittany today and I thought good humans is something I didn't see a lot of in the documentary and something <laughs> we should all aspire to be. And the little label here has some pictures of all different kinds of people. And it talks about kindness and passion. Um, this is also a beer I've had before from shorts. I like shorts, great brewery in Bel Air. They also have an Elk Rapids location here in Northern Michigan. Um, but it's a double Brown ale made with care Brown malt and dry hopped with Simcoe and golding hops. And they made it originally as a one-off beer and it became so popular. It's now part of their lineup. Yeah. Hey, great choice. And I guess if slurring happens, we know it's due to that, <laughs> that ABV. <laughs> Thanks shorts. I was just thinking of like Dwayne Wade or Steph Curry. Like I've, I think there's some other examples in the NBA. Even Kobe post some of his scandals, mm -hmm. which I don't want to sweep under the rug, but I have seen some stability with some of those athletes that you're talking about. And in each of those cases, they have strong wives. Let's go women <laughs> who keep their husbands <laughs> in line. And they seem to have a very strong sense of family. Um, and I think that was the missing element we're talking about. I mean, Brittany's at literal war with her own family right now um, and not having those connections. I think it all goes back to what I know you talk about with the church, Anthony, but I think it's just important for anyone is community. Sure. Community is so important. And if you have no sense of who you are and you're in an industry like entertainment, that's going to constantly try to tell you who you are or who you need to be to fill some fantasy for the public, you better have people around you who really know you and see you and can remind you of that. Cause if the only mirror that you have held up to you all the time is the one held up by fame, I think that's such a distorting mm. way to go through life, seeing yourself. Okay. So I got to tell you a story from when I was a kid, when I was in high school, I lived for basketball, just loved basketball. Taylor could relate. <laughs> and I remember it's my junior or senior year. I mean, when I say I live for basketball, you got to understand it controlled my emotions and my thoughts. I mean, it, it really, I loved basketball. Mm. And my dad told me one year, he said, I don't think I'll be coming to your games this year. Mm. And I said, why not? He said, because, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember his exact words. So because it's your identity and I want you to know that I value you, not because of you playing basketball, but simply because you're you and that you're my son. And so he did almost all the games, except for the last couple, he, he skipped my games. And when I would come home, he would ask me how it went. He wanted to update it. He wanted to hear how it was, but he made it very clear to me. I need to be at least one person in your life who shows you, you have value. That's not related to your success. That's so interesting. And that it would be easy, I would think, yeah. to, to feel a different way yeah. about that, that your dad wasn't supporting you by coming to your games. But well, that's. Well, OK, I, I have a theory that, <laughs> that my dad was more introverted than I realized. <laughs> and this might have killed two birds with He's one like stone. He's like a good pastoral that's lesson right. here. Yeah, that can stay home. Um, but I, I have had people ask me that over the years because they would think that it just crushed me. It didn't crush me. And I think part of it, I was pretty full of myself. I'm like, whatever, dad. <laughs> but in hindsight, I think that was actually really, really good. Mm. Uh, and I, I have tried to pass it on to my boys. I have taken a different approach. I do go watch my boys play, but I tell them over and over again, things like you put basketball in its place. You know, a couple of years from now, nobody's going to remember whether or not you threw a ball through a circle. Uh, I will tell them over and over again, I don't care how you play. You're my son. 
It's fun. So trying to remember from my dad, I, I want them to understand that their sense of value and worth and dignity will not merely come from accomplishments. I mean, obviously it's nice to have accomplishments, um, but it, it's simply going to be because they're human back to our uh, good humans beer. <laughs> Just the fact that you're human is sufficient for you to have worth and for you to have worth in my eyes. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe that's also part of that grounding community is yeah. that somehow there's a message that is conveyed. It's like, Oh, your movie bombed. Who cares? Your album didn't sell. That's fine. Yeah. You're a virgin or not. Who cares? Yep. Nobody's yep. business. And it doesn't define you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't define <laughs> you. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that as we talk about, yeah, what is that grounding? And do you have mechanisms in your life that are people that care about you that cared before you were famous that are going to keep you grounded? And yeah, I think about that now that we mentioned those athletes specifically, because I pay attention to sports is it does seem like the relationships that are the strongest, like you take LeBron, for example, um, I think it's his manager uh, agent was like on his high school football team. Mm-hmm. And he continues to to value like bringing others up with him that were there from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And I think that there that there is value um, to that. Like then you're then you're not always wondering, like, what is this person actually in for? Because we've seen people can put on a heck of a show in convincing you that they actually care about you when really, you know, they're willing to play the long game. Like, yeah, I will absolutely just be your friend and, and, and tag along for however long it takes, because eventually I'll get a piece of that pie. And I would, it's gotta be just so tiring, always on the lookout for people like that. Yeah. And to to the examples that Anthony was giving about some of the scandals that have happened in the religious community recently, you know, the dangers of surrounding yourself by yes, people are not just that they'll take advantage of you, but that they'll be afraid to be honest with you (laughs) so that if they are also benefiting from the power structure that's in place, as many are, whether it's celebrity or the church or whatever, um, they're not inclined to challenge a system that they're profiting from, first of all. Mm-hmm. But especially if they don't have any deep personal relationship to you, they're not looking out for your spiritual well-being or if you're LeBron James, your mental well-being, your health. They're protecting the power structure. Everything is in service of protecting the structure and the entity instead of the people who are in it. And that's where I see, it goes back to the de- dehumanization mm-hmm. thing. Systems, whether it's fame, certain uh, church structures, whatever it is, when systems become more important than people is Mm, where mm, I think it mm, it fails. mm, Yeah. And I think when you talk about, keep coming back to LeBron, but anybody that is doing good things, if that's like with their money or their deeds, the good always seems more good when that person hasn't like had a scandal. And I think about like, you know, what happens when someone does have a scandal? Like, does that make their deed worthless. And I think that's a conversation worth having. Like LeBron built a, built a school. And I remember someone had posted on Facebook cause they were really upset that LeBron was speaking out so heavily against racial injustice. And they were like, what a, what a bunch of crap, like the taxpayers are paying for this school. And I'm like, it is a public school. They are paying after he paid to build the entire thing. So what are you <laughs> wanting out of this dude? And so we have to ask ourselves that too, of like, if we're going to utilize some of the good things that these people are doing, you know, how are we responding when bad things happen or when they, when they act inappropriately? Cause I don't think it erases all the good deeds. I don't think it should erase all the good deeds that someone does. And it also doesn't mean that celebrities are, are 
perfect, you know, or that like, for example, with Britney Spears, I, again, I don't know her personally, every decision that she made was a wise or good decision. Um, so I, I don't think you don't want to go the opposite way and put people on a pedestal either. I think it's good to embrace people as what we all are, which is people who have value inherently, who are also flawed, uh, who will make mistakes. Like I'm much more interested though, in like the trajectory of someone's Mm -hmm. story and journey, like what they're striving towards. If you make a mistake, how do you handle it? How do you apologize? How do you take accountability for it? Um, I just think the fame levels that we put on top of it is I think that's like a weighted blanket that makes it difficult to thrive morally or just in your life or societally in general. It's, it's, it's like, it seems like an oppressive element to me. No, I I think what we've arrived at now as we're, as we are solving this problem as a group. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we should be Britney's conservators. (laughs) (laughs) And we get Tom Hanks next show. I I think what we're hearing is long history in a solid community or a stable community that continues to carry weight in our lives. Um, I hear those three elements coming up over and over. Rootedness, some sort of rootedness rootedness. and in your sense of self and in your relationships with other people. So then I think the question that I have for you guys and maybe for the listening base to consider too is because we don't, we don't have control over what Brittany does in terms of keeping well-grounded and keeping good people say around her then I think we at least need to ask like what we have control over, which is how are we responding to stories like hers when they hit the airwaves and what's going through our mind. And so I'm definitely after having watched that documentary, because I remember where I was when the, when this stuff was playing out, when she shaved her head and how easy it was to laugh at all that stuff. I'm thinking like, okay, if something like this happens again to a different celebrity how am I going to respond? And even though they'll never be able to feel like the weight of my support or anything, um, just what is a, what is a proper way to respond as a, as a good person? Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think we have immense power as consumers. Um, so, you know, collectively we have just as much power as Brittany does individually as a celebrity. So I think the way we consume celebrities is something we're personally responsible for that, mm-hmm. that includes, you know, buying gossip magazines. Um, where does our money go? Yeah. Where does yep. our money go? Yep. And then on top of the money, uh, cause you won't be able to, I think, stop everyone from consuming that to a level that's going to decrease the demand for it, but you can stop it for yourself. Um, then there's also the conversations that you have and when you, what you just said, Taylor, like some of the takeaways that you had from it, like you were talking about, you know, asking younger girls if they have a boyfriend or not like that change, I think is a powerful personal shift. It's like a change I need to think about too. Um, and so when you have a celebrity who's freaking out and you make fun of them on your social media account or whatever, and I love pop culture. So I talk about celebrities all the time. I tweet award shows and make fun of how celebrities look like I am guilty of this. So this is something I need to think about also, but like, especially when someone's having mental health issues and that's apparent, like mocking that it doesn't matter that Brittany never hears what I'm saying. People in my life who have mental health issues are hearing what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a more important conversation to have because it will impact people around you (laughs) and how we talk about it probably impacts how people see them. Like it's, it impacts how young girls see themselves. It impacts how women see themselves. So it's not just about the celebrities. I was thinking of what it looks like for us to try to have our first thoughts and then our response be 
love, but that's a vague word. So I'm going to, I'm going to give two categories that I think are both part of love. And I think could be applied to virtually everything we've talked about today. And that is, do I respond in this case with justice or mercy? So let's take Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, uh, that's a call to justice. (laughs) Right. Uh, and it, it doesn't suggest that at least where I come from, I mean, I would love had his life continued for the trajectory of his life to be to be a genuine acknowledgement of the horrible things he did and a genuine attempt, right? It's not, it's not like I would have written him off, but what that dude needed was justice. Um, who's the um, the director? Harvey. Harvey, yeah. 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 He's another one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I'm going to respond, what rises out of my heart is a demand for justice because there's victims. And in both those cases, they did not seem to be people who had any sense of what they had done. When I think of Brittany, I think what needs to arise out of my heart is a sense of mercy. I I really think she has been just, she's just taken body blows. Mm -hmm. And even if she has made some of her own poor decisions, which we all do, that's, that still doesn't discount that she has absorbed a lot Mm -hmm. from a culture that has done her wrong. Okay. So I, I want my response to be, I think, loaded with mercy for her. And it's not that those are an either or, I mean, most of life is a both and of some sort, but I, I'm starting to wonder what it looks like to just start to try to filter what I'm doing and go, okay, which one am I, am I leading with in this situation? And I feel like that's a little different Beth from mm-hmm. when we're making jokes about stuff. Sure. And, you know, there's some celebrities like a Bill Murray, you can make jokes about <laughs> Bill Murray. He'd like you to, right? Cause he's a crazy uncle. He's yeah. the crazy <laughs> uncle. Right. So I think people who kind of immerse themselves in pop culture, you get a vibe for who kind of enjoys the fun of the give and take, et cetera. And for who it's like, Oh man, that hurt. Um, but, but coming back to that idea of, yeah, when I go front and center, you're right. I don't know Brittany, even well, I don't buy those gossip rags, but my not buying them, they're still out there, but you're right. What I say on Facebook sends a message, you know, I can call Brittany a bimbo, or I could say, man, that it is hard to see how Mm -hmm. she has just been used by the system. Cause I think ultimately mm-hmm. is that the celebrities are just archetypes for people that we know in real yep. life. Yeah. So if you make fun of a fat celebrity for being fat, mm-hmm. you have views about obesity and what you think people should look like that are also going to carry over into your real life and how you interact with real people who have weight issues. If you make fun and think it's okay to make up mental health, that's not just going to apply to celebrities. It's going to apply. So even the Bill Murray example yeah. is just like, we all have a crazy uncle mm-hmm. and Bill Murray reminds us <laughs> of our, <laughs> our crazy uncle. Mm-hmm. So I think you can have a lighthearted approach about some of those things. Like I tease my friends. Yeah. And so for some of me, it's like making fun celebrities is fun because I genuinely adore them. I just like, I like films and pop culture and whatever, but uh, yes, I think what's coming out of your heart towards celebrities does reflect how you feel about real world issues. And you have to guard that and be careful about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the, the justice versus mercy. And I'm looking at it as and you can help me formulate this, but so Justice might be needed if the harm that the person has caused is outweighing any harm that they have coming to them. Like for Mm -hmm. a Jeffrey Epstein, I feel like you could throw that dude in prison for 2000 years (laughs) and it's still not going to be as cause him as much harm as what he caused other people. Mm -hmm. Whereas this Brittany thing like, oh, maybe she's made some decisions that weren't the best for her kids. But on looking at her situation, I think she's undergone more harm than what she's caused. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's how we start to dole out mercy. What if I think of it this way? They're both intertwined, right? 
But it, we look at a situation and go, which is the approach I need to give the most weight to in order to resolve the issue that's in front of us? And with Brittany, I don't think Brittany, I, I think what she needs is people who genuinely love and care for her mm. big time. Now, uh, and, and that I think will be, you know, absorbing her and loving her for who she is and where she's at. And how do we, you know, go from here with, with Epstein, I think you lead with justice and that's because he is damaging so many people. And like I said, I, my heart would be that he genuinely sees where he's still alive, that he would genuinely see what he had done and just start a new trajectory in his life. But it, even then that is not separate from no, the way to resolve what is happening both in his life and the lives of the people around him there is justice. Mm -hmm. um, so once again, intertwined, but you're always going to give weight to one or the other, depending on the situation. I think. I, I don't know if there's anything else that we need to, to dissect here. I think it was cool to kind of end this conversation in a way of like, what can we do as consumers of, you know, entertainment and stuff moving forward and the approach that we need to take, whether the person um, in the spotlight knows that we're doing that or not. I think it's just a healthy approach because again, as we, as we discussed, like what you say negatively about someone famous on your social media feed is going to get picked up by people that aren't famous, but maybe share some of those attributes. And so if we then um, approach things in a healthier, more helpful way, that's also going to be seen, even if it's not seen by the famous person. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, how you react to celebrities says more about you than it says about celebrities. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. That's, that's thought provoking. Beth. <laughs> so uh, call it a, call it an episode here. This was a really good conversation. Yeah. Thank you guys. Yeah. <laughs>